0: Hello, this is Gidon Rothstein, and this is the fifth chapter of the Book of Eicha. It is the last chapter of the Book of Lamentations, as well as, in a somewhat bittersweet moment for me, the last chapter I will be doing as part of the OU's Nachyami project. Uh, let me make sure before I finish, before I start and get caught up in the Navi itself and the Ketuvim themselves, to see how much I've enjoyed our time together, how much of Yashikach I give to all those who are listening and keeping up with becoming more familiar with the Devar Hashem, with the Word of God as it has revealed itself to us in the books of Tanakh. Uh, it's been my pleasure. I hope uh, people will continue to be in touch with me at grothst at gmail.com, Groth at gmail.com. Uh, let me take one little moment. I apologize for, for those who are offended by this, but I do have a book about Navi out there, a book of fiction based on Navi called Cassandra Misreads Cassandra misreads the Book of Samuel, which has more of my insights into, I think, what the background or the atmosphere of Navi were. But for today's Peric, we are in the last section of, and this is the non-acrostic version, the non-acrostic chapter in the book of Echa, it is just lamentation, just mourning over the destruction that has occurred. So, Pasik Aleph, Zichor Hashem, Hayalanu, Habito, Re'ed, Patenu Remember Hashem, what has befallen us, see how disgraced we are. So, it's just, at the at this stage, it is just a mourning over the terrible things that have happened. So, what has happened? Pasek Bet, Nechalateinu, Nehebchal, Dezareim, Bateinu, Linochrim, Our, Heritage is a past alien. We've been we've been taken over militarily, and our homes have gone to strangers. We've lost those as well. We were orphans. We've become orphans, fatherless, and our mothers have become like widows. And so the father here would presumably be Hakadosh Baruch Hu, and is talking about the abandonment of the Jewish people by their protector, by their supporter, by Hakadosh Baruch May menu. that sense of abandonment is crucial or important here, and some of the uh, expressions of it, like in Posig Dalit, Now literally this means, we have to pay to drink our own water, and obtain our own kindling at a price. So Rashi's reading of several of the things in this parak going to be interesting, because Rashi says, they, We were afraid to draw the water ourselves and therefore we would buy it for money. So Rashi seems to be assuming it's not that the enemies required us to buy it for money. It's more that we were just afraid to go to the water because dangerous things would happen. It's not clear in Rashi why he says it that way. It seems to me they might say it that way because otherwise it's, it's hard to understand what it would mean that you'd have to buy your water. There's water... In lots of places, why can't you just go to those places? So one possibility might have been that they're going to guard it so fully that they're forcing us to buy the water. It's part of their cruelty to us that they require us to buy water. But Rashi seem to understand that that's not what's going on. And it's a different kind of a... It's a different expression of a time of trouble, which I think is perhaps more interesting in that the time of trouble is that things are just so generally dangerous that people don't feel comfortable, don't feel uh, like they have the ability To go and get the water. Therefore they pay for it. And I think about that. I think that's an interesting question as to when do we notice that the amount of danger in our lives is an inappropriate level and that that's an indication that something is wrong. Meaning if you were living in a society like that, that's just the way it was. In your society you had to buy water because it's dangerous to go get water. Or, you know, New York in the 1970s was a dangerous place to live. So it was a dangerous place to live and you would say to yourself, this is a part of a kind of punishment that Hashem is sending me that I have to live in such places. place. It's a part of Hashem abandoning me that I can't feel secure. Or would you say, well, this is just the way it is in this particular society at this particular time? So Rashi's understanding that the lack of security in their lives is what they mean as an expression of what Hashem is doing to them. So that's one interesting aspect of this process. Another is that the Gemara in Yevamot, Tafkuv Chet Ahmed quotes of Marav, who cites this we had to pay money for our water and tells two stories of debate about what the halachic topic was but relates us to a story in which they, the the rabbis of, of Rabbi Akiva's time after he'd been taken to jail did not know a certain halacha and they had to pay somebody 400 zuz which was a, a, a significant sum of money to go stand outside his window and try to ask him the question to get the answer so there the understanding of shatino is we had to pay dearly for our water, but water in this context meaning Torah, right? Which, which is a common metaphor, but the the I think the interesting part for me of the Gemara is that it's understanding the that maybe not as literally water only, but also as the water of Torah and that too came at a very dear, a very expensive price and then that would be another example of whether or not we notice if there comes a time when Torah scholarship is so uh, is it such a premium, meaning it's hard to find it and it's hard to find the sources of true Torah, will that be evidence to us of a time of punishment and a time of sadness for our people? Pasuk al tzavarenu yaganu we are hotly pursued, is what the JPS English has, so it says literally on our neck, and the meaning is uncertain, but it means something like that, al tzavarenu they were chased, they were chased in a difficult way, exhausted, we are given no rest. So al tzavarenu rashi, understands as so he's struggling with the same thing. As, why is it all suffering we were chased on our necks? So Rashi is saying it's not so much that we were chased, as that we were pressured by being forced to do hard work. And then the yoke of hard work is commonly ascribed to being the neck from the from the image of an ox who works under a yoke as they pull a plow. So that would be the image here too. And then Rashi says, We strive, strive hard, we toil to gather money and possessions and it's not left in our hands, if you read it on your own, you might have thought that it would mean that they're chasing us and they're grabbing it from us so that's why we don't have it. Rashi says, no. They take it from us in various forms of taxes, either a straight-out tax, a poll tax, whatever it may be. So Rashi is here understanding so just like in Pasuk Dalad, the buying of water, was not a function of being forced into buying water. It was a function of living in a society where security is such an issue that water is more easily purchased than it is acquired, than it is just gotten from the river or gotten from the well. Here, too, Rashi's understanding our being chased and our not having is not a function of an actual physical battle-war image. That wasn't continuing in those times. It is rather an image of, a function of, the fact that the that the ruling nation around us Requires us to pay such significant taxes that we don't have any money left. So, first of all, I think it's probably accurate about Rashi's time that he's living in a time when there were significant taxes that made it very difficult to make a living. But then it also expands the meaning and the understanding of the of this pasuk and echa, not just to then when they were actually being chased. And you could say, well, we live in a time when we're not chased. To the extent that as long as people live in a time when making a living is difficult, and then once they make the living. Taxes seem burdensome and therefore make it that much harder to make a living, this Pasuk and Rashid would apply, and then we would be living in an era which exactly can say the same thing. We stretched a hand out to Egypt for help, and Ashur to try to get bread for our fill of bread. So Raj says Natanu is that we stretched out, and he's saying that it's like a person who's falling and they're trying to reach out, so they reach out to Mitzrayim and to Ashur. And those are the places that we turn for salvation. And obviously, the Rashi doesn't say it, there's a problem here because instead of turning to Hashem for salvation, we're turning to Egypt and to Ashur. There's an interesting Midrash Tanchuma, not we're going to take the full way, but that tries to relate all of the things that happened to Yosef to all things that happened to Zion. And so one of the comparisons is made is, that in the case of Yosef, it says, after the brothers sell him, they sit down to eat bread, and then with Sion, it says, so it's not exactly the same thing, but the Medjah seems to be assuming that the, the role of bread as being significant in the experience of the trouble seems to relate it to. Now, you'd want to ask yourself, I'd want to ask myself, why is it think that it's interesting to note parallel between Yosef and Sion? That would be, would be a discussion for a different time. I think it would be the question of being abandoned, being thrown suddenly into exile, having the shock of it. I think it would be all those things. But you'd have to go through the whole Medrash, something which we obviously do not have time for here. Our forefathers sin, and are no more, meaning they've already passed away, they're not here, and we are going to bear their guilt. I remember my father, I Shalom complaining to me about the fact that uh, the a which seems to put all the blame on the fathers. He, in a father role, was concerned that you know his children and grandchildren would then put all the blame on him for things that go wrong, and he felt there was something unfair about that. But the Mechilta, the Rabbi Shimon, by Yochai, gives an understanding of it that would have allayed his fears as well, because it says that the analogy would be to somebody who borrows money from a king, a hundred money, a lot of money, and then doesn't, and then denies it, doesn't pay it back. And then his son comes and he borrows from the king another a hundred money another sum of money and doesn't pay it back and then the grandson comes and he borrows it and doesn't pay it back when the great grandson comes when the fourth generation comes they say we're not going to lend you anymore because of your forefathers and then he'll say this great grandson who actually in the Medrash's understanding of it in the Mechilta's understanding of it had intended not to pay it back will say well my forefathers sinned and are no more but the point of the mechilta is to tell us that it's not true that we just got punished for them, it's it's that we have those sins within us, and then the fact that our forefathers did them uh, works to our Discredit. Meaning, had we been the first generations of sinners in this way, we would have gotten away with it just because Hashem is in Hashem gives people time to do tshuva, gives people time to, to change. So had we been the first generation, we would have gotten away with it. And therefore, what we're complaining about, really, when we say, mm-hmm. is not, we're being punished for their sins. It's that we're not getting the length of time to sin with impunity without yet bearing in this world the punishment for it. Because of our forefathers who said, which is a very different perspective of what's going on. So with our souls we bring our bread because of the sword of the desert. So again Rashi, being consistent, he will say not with our actual souls, but when we go out to try to make a living from the fields, we're going to have to worry about Hamid hamidbar, about the swords that are out there. And we're gonna to have to have a uh, concern about it. So for Rashi, the picture of this peric is that the abandonment by Hashem leads to a situation in which we need to make a living in difficult circumstances, in dangerous circumstances, and that danger and those difficulties complicate our making a living. Our skin glows like an oven with the fever of famine. Uh, that they have uh princes, have, no. That they have ravished women in Zion, presumably. So the JBS says, and in, in, on this, they on the Nashim B'Siyon knew that they ravaged women. The JBS thinks that the, the slaves of verse eight, gavadim Mashlubano. Right. I'm sorry. It's the slaves. It's the, it's the people who are taking control of us, they have ravished women, Betulot, and maidens, which is probably perhaps virgins in the towns of Yudah, but the point being that our uh, sexual chastity was threatened by, it seems to have been threatened by our time in this time of trouble and, and being controlled by these other nations. So, First of all, I'll note that that's an issue. It's a continuing issue for the Jewish people. The whole idea, or at least in Medrash, at least in the Gemara, is the whole idea that we have understanding and control and knowledge of with whom we are, have do or do not have or have not been having relations, and therefore have or have not been having children, is a recurring theme. There's that uh, discussion of in in Chumash. There's a Rashi in one place where they count the Jewish people, and they add a yud and a k and a, a yud at the beginning of name. And Hayes at the end of the name, to say that Hashem is verifying that the Jews in Egypt, for all that they were slaves, were not raped and were not uh, sexually assaulted by their owners to guarantee that the Jewish people who came out were all the ch- sons of the or the children of the fathers they had meant to be. Here, too, that is a very big concern. So, that's actually a concern that comes from the Gemara in Kiddushin, Daph Ayin, Aleph Amud Bet. There's a whole discussion about the fact that before Israel left Babel, and went to Israel, he arranged the genealogies of Babel to be sure that everybody knew and understood who uh, that everybody was, in fact, uh, of proper lineage, and there were no descendancy problems, there were no lineage problems, there were no Mamzeud problems, there were no problems of people who should not be mixing in with the Jewish people in Babel. That tells a very interesting story that Ula went to Pumbedita to the house of Rabbi Yehuda, and he seized Rabbi Yitzchak, the son of Yehuda was relatively old. We're not told by the age, which probably means he's like sixteen or seventeen or eighteen, and not yet married. So he says, "Why aren't you getting your son married off?" So Yehuda says, "I don't know who to marry him to." So Ula says, "But I understand we don't know who we don't know who we are either, right?" And they go on in that whole discussion. So uh, so therefore, basically, you say you should get married. But that discussion ends with the whole idea, the whole concept that Ezra, in fact, had. Guaranteed that, but it is an example of a concern that I'm not always sure we're always uh, as clear about, and the concern being the issue of purity of lineage, the issue of being clear that all the members of the Jewish people have proper and and appropriate lineages. So, in our times, there have been occasions where people have said, "Well, if somebody is a mamzer, God forbid, and it's a terrible thing to have happened." It's better, or to some extent it would be better, if we could just let the thing not be known. So that I've certainly heard people advise that if you knew of somebody who was a momser and was about to get married, that there's no need to actually go out and announce it and tell it. They just let it sort of get swallowed up. So that might be the good, valid advice for today, but it does show part of a tragedy or part of a difficulty they we struggling with as a people, and this comes up here in this puzzle as well, the whole idea of women, aside from the tragedy for the women themselves, but the whole idea of the possibility of children, of unknown and unverified parentage and genetic background and all those kinds of things is an important one. Pesach Yudbet, Sarimbi Adam, Nithlu, lone So along with, while the women, they've been ravishing and doing those kinds of wrong things too, the officers of the princes have been hanged by their hands, Daru and they have not honored or they have not shown respect to the elders. So this Pasig is actually um and the of the Ritva in Kiddushin points out that there's a Pasik So the Gemara there talks about which one is done for which, and talks about the fact that it's Pinezakinim that you show hider to, and then it's Seva that you stand up before Mine Seva. So the Ritva I believe is indicating or if we take him a step further, we can say that that suggests that what you, your reaction to seva, to advance to the old age of seva, which probably includes uh, some level of Torah knowledge, so that seva, it's sort of mitne seva takum. It's you stand up from before it. There's a certain amount of reaction to it in that sense. Whereas peneza kinilonedaru, or vadarta peneza is that in seeing, and this is probably more likely just old age, when you see old age, then you're showing hidur. You are honoring it to its face, but it's not a reaction of of any kind of awe of any kind of withdrawal it's okay. so that 's something that the Riva points to here as an example of as evidence of young men have to carry millstones and youth stagger youths stagger under loads of wood and not just the point of making them carry this is. To tire them out, and, and so therefore it's not, it's not what would have been bad enough. It's not that we're just required to do their work for them. Mm -hmm. It's that we're beginning work that's almost make work just to tire us out and to break down any resistance we might have had, any strength we might have had to, to resist or to think about resisting to them, to these powers. So that's another aspect of what was going on. The old elderly or the elders, the leaders, are gone from the gates, and the young people are, are have stopped playing their music. So this pasuk actually pasuk yedaleh is the source of a halacha that perhaps sometimes is not as well known as it might be, and that uh, that halacha is in a, based in a mission in Sota Tafmem Chet hamet aleph towards the end of Sota. There's a mission that says mishabatlasan hedrin. It's part of a whole list of things that when this Stop, this also stopped. So Mishabata Sanhedrin when the Sanhedrin was uh was dispersed was no longer active, but Til Hashim Bitamishtaut. So then the singing stopped from party houses. Shine Marsila Ishtu Yin. Pasagin Shang says that in at the time of song they not allowed to drink wine. The Mishmetu Marishonim, it goes on, but every two minutes said, the command said. I mean, my Mishnah about the Sanhedrin. How do you know? Because the Yeshua just says, "Bashilu Yisdu Yain." How do you know that it was connected to the lost of the Sanhedrin? So, Amar of of Yeshua, Shabatu, when the Zakenim were left, left the Shahr, or were uh fell into disuse, the there were no more Zakenim in the Shahr. There were no more elders at the gate. When they were Shavatu when they left the gates, when they no longer were present in the gates. That was when the Bachurim stopped their Naginatam, stopped their music. So therefore, the Gemara is saying, this puzzle reveals what Yeshayon meant by Bashir el What he meant was, in the time when there's no Sanhedrin, then there's supposed to be no Shir in the Beit Mishtaot, in the houses of festivities. We'll get to that in a second, that's what we mean by that. But what is the connection between the two? I think it's interesting to see, the Gemara doesn't elaborate on it, but it seemed to me, I think we're suggesting that the presence of a Sanhedrin, which establishes law and establishes the order in society, it's only in that context that the Jews have the right to have uh, festivities in the way of singing and celebration in, in its fullest musical sense. And the experience of music is supposed to be within a context when a law and a legal system are fully operative. That's what it seemed to me to be true. The Shachanach is actually fairly machmed uh, on this halacha. It's fairly machmed on this halacha. It's in Orachayim Simon Tov Kuf Tet. It's that So the Shelchan Aruch says, and it's a, it's a, This is a lach that is more often followed in the breach. I'm sorry, it's not. It's Tafkuf samach, right? samach uh, seif gimel. It's a lach that's often, more often followed in the breach than in the actuality. He says These are among the gaziru that were made. In memory of the korban, many, if not most of which, no longer are widely followed today. So one of them is, again to not to play musical instruments. To be happy with uh, at them and, and listening to them. Uh, so I think probably people today would say, this as well, I learned a musical. Either you'd say, we're Ashkenazim, and we'll see what the Ramah says in a second. Or you might say, well, I'm not using it to be happy with, I'm using it to learn how to play for the skill of learning how to play. But I think it's untrue. I think we play musical instruments to be happy with it as a part of our, our celebration. And, and so the actual practice might be not be a joyful thing, but then when we play it just for the fun of it, that's what we're doing. So the Ramah says, So some say it's only if you're going to do it regularly for the joy of it, meaning practicing it regularly would be a pain, because you're just practicing. But if you play music regularly to make your life more enjoyable, go and hamilachim She... Of music when they get up and when they go to sleep there's music all the time so that's their most first uh, minimization of it so theoretically then one would only be in trouble if they had music regularly but then the Shachanah goes on and this is all because of destruction he says even to sing orally verbally without music if you have wine around, is prohibited. Shnei amar b'shir d'rish our that I mentioned before. Uchvar ne'ahog kol says, the custom has become l'mar d'veri tishpachot, haushir shal hodaot v'zichron, chazdeh hakadosh But it has become the common custom to at least sing words of praise, to say words of praise or sing songs of praise to Hashem, even when there's wine around. The ramass is v'chein le'tzorech mitzvah. And so too, for the purposes of a mitzvah, like in a house of a bride and a groom, So there, it would all be permissible. So that question then becomes a, a challenging one of when it is we're allowed to have music when we're not. So, And remember that the Ramah and the Shulchan Aruch are assuming a time or living in a time when there's no such thing as recorded music. And there's this thing as broadcast music, so that's a whole set of questions as to whether those are included. For many purposes, we tend to assume that they're not so much, but that's not such a simple, clear kind of a thing. So, in terms of mourning the Chubah and mourning the destruction, you have a pasuk in Yishaya and a pasuk in Eicha, which would seem to indicate that part of being a Jew who experienced the destruction of the Temple, and this is, you'll pardon me for going on so long, but a mini theme of mine as to whether we actually experienced the destruction of the Temple, we actually feel it as a deep lack in our lives. There certainly were generations of Jews who felt it as a deep lack in their lives. My question is whether we feel it as a deep lack in our lives. So, that there's, in other words, there's good solid grounding in halacha, in the Shulchan in the ramah. There's good solid grounding to say that it's permissible to have live music at a wedding. There's good solid grounding, perhaps, to say you have live music at a bar mitzvah because you're celebrating the, the mitzvah experience, the Uh, the celebration of this young man becoming a bar mitzvah. But when you move beyond there, so then there are more complicated questions and more uh, less obvious questions of when and where music is permitted. It would certainly seem to be that if you're going to be drinking wine of any sort, to have live music is a problem, but it may be even recording music is a problem. So somebody who's going to go out to what we today call a bar where they had a live band, uh, it would seem to be an issue, at least it would seem to be an issue, uh, that they're not allowed to have music around such things. Also, somebody is going to have music as a regular part of their lives. So if it's recorded music, or if it's broadcast music, there may be room to say it's okay. If it's going to be live music, there would be certainly a problem. But even recorded or broadcast music, it would seem to be that the way the Shulchan Arachlan is saying the halacha is that having music regularly to cheer up your life is part of what we're not really supposed to have fully in the case of Jews who have not yet seen a return of a Benamikdash and a return of a HaTad Vav, mesos libeinu, nepech lo'eivu the Gone is the joy of our hearts. Our dancing is turned into mourning. Nafla'a roshenu vashenu, the crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us that we have sinned. So these two psekim, are along very much along the lines of what I was saying just a second ago, which is that question. Do we see this? Do we experience? Because this is a puzzle that lasts into our times. Now, the Ramam, when he starts talking about the, the fast that we keep today, talks about it in exactly that way, that we keep fast today because we're mourning their sins that were like ours. So that's a problem for us here in this puzzle as to the extent to which we walk around. So it's very difficult to walk around all the time aware of the fact that your life is just not nearly what it should have been. And I think many people like to say, well, it's not good to think that way in life and to feel that way in life. Um, So I'm not sure. I'm just not sure that it's not supposed to be part of the consciousness of a Jew that we live a life in which so many things are simply missing from our lives that we otherwise would have had, should have had, and and are essential to what it means to be a Jew. So I think that that experience is something that has been somewhat lost from the Jewish people. Because of this our hearts are sick, because of these our eyes are dimmed. Because of Mount Zion, which lies desolate, the jackals prowl over it. So, I wouldn't say there are little jackals, but it's almost worse. Meaning, in the time of Eicha, it's almost worse today. There are mosques on it. So, I think that that experience, that understanding of it, again, should be part of what makes us sad, what makes us aware of the terrible things that are happening. There's a beautiful, beautiful, it's a Gemara also, but there's a Sifre, and Devarim. It's also Gemara at the end of Makos, that will help us end off, not on such a sad note, so I'm going to leave it, but it's on these Psikkim, I want to mention it here, and we'll come back to it in just a couple of minutes, after we finish the other Psikkim. So, you, HaShem, are enthroned forever, Rashi says, not you are enthroned, but, Yadanu ki olam Meaning, it's not you do it, it's because we know that you do it and that your seat last generation generation. Why do you abandon us? You have sworn to us that you would redeem us, so why don't you fulfill it already? Meaning, now we're turning to, to begging and hoping that Hashem will return us to our proper place, and return us to our right place so that we can return, renew our days of us old, because if you're really so angry with us, um, Rashi says, on, Rashi says that if you've rejected us so fully, it's really great anger, Rashi says it's almost a rebuke, it's saying we couldn't have sinned so much, we worthy of so much anger. So that's a daring take, according to Rashi on the very end of the book of Eicha, a beg, a plea a cry to Hashem to say that much as we understand how we deserve this much as we understand what, but what we've gotten is so much that maybe it's time for you Hashem who has an oath to us a promise to us to come and to redeem us and then Rashi comes back and he has it as Pasuk Chav Gimel in the parak, which is interesting we because we only have Chav Bet in our parak because it has a new Pasuk we, because we repeat the last the second last pasuk of Eicha, Hashemin, Rashim, and return us Hashem, and let us come back, together and renew our days of as, old, as of old. We repeat it at the end of reading of this book. Rashi here notes what is well known, but that it comes up here and it comes up elsewhere in Haftarot, that there are four books of Tanakh, which end on such a sad note that we repeat the second to last pasuk, because we don't want to finish on such a sad note. That would be Yeshayahu. The book of Treyasar, which ends with Manglachi, and the book of Kohelet, all of which end on a sad note and therefore we read the second to the last plastic over again and that's what we do here as well so we try to end on a happiest note, even though this is a book of lamentations, even though it's a book in which even though it's a book in which so much sadness has happened we're really just mourning and and wallowing in what has gone wrong for us, nonetheless we end on we try to end on the note of hoping for salvation and awareness of salvation and in that light, I want to just tell a famous story about Rabbi Akiva and his colleagues were walking along together in Yerushalayim and they got to Har Abayin and what they saw was a jackal a shu'al or a fox maybe but a shu'al a jackal is the JPS translation coming out of the Holy of Holies where the Holy of Holies used to be where the Kodesh place used to be where the Orin used to be so all of the friends started crying because it's a terrible awful awful thing to see the desolation so fully and Rabbi Akiva would laugh so they said to him, "Why are you laughing?" He said to them, "Why are you crying?" And they said, "How can we, how can we not cry when the pasuk, uh, when the the place about which it said, that the that any stranger who comes, meaning a human being, stranger who comes, a human being, non coined who comes, to be death. And here you have a shu'al, a jackal, wandering in it uh, with, without a, without a problem. And on us, they say." This pasuk of al yada ve'li our pasuk, that al-shashir shu alim hiokadol, is coming true. We see the fulfillment of a sad prophecy. Should we not be sad? Should we not be terribly sad? So that's an issue of its own. Meaning, for them, and this I think years ago, Rabbi Yuval Sherlo, of the Shiva HaTazerim, Pentech Tikva, wrote an article in, Shiva HaTazerim has a Tanakh journal, called Megadim, Here's an article, a very important article about the fact that we don't live Tanakh anymore. We don't see it as alive and relevant to us. And for these Tanayim, it was absolutely alive. When the Pasuk said Shulim when they saw Shulim, it was uh, a fulfillment of that terrible prophecy and they were struck by it. So that should be true. Ideally, really, when we read Haftarot, those of you who are listening or are Nachyomi people, as we read Nevi'im, they're supposed to be alive for us as well. They are Nevi'im that they go into Tanakh precisely because they happen, they apply, and they are worthy of understanding in every generation. So Rabbi Kiva's response was, that's why I was laughing as well. The fulfillment of the Pasuk was something that made me happy. Why? Because there's a Pasuk in Yeshaya in Pasuk Chet, which says, I will call for myself faithful witnesses Uriah HaKohen and ben Yevarech These two witnesses, Uriah and Zechariah. And, and Rabbi Akiva says, what are the two related to each other? They don't live at the same time. They're not They're not any kind of related people. So he says, No, Uriah? Uriah said, Zion, Sadech, Teh Haresh. says, the predictions of the, in Yahu. he's quoted with predictions of, the destruction that's going to come, and Zechariah says, Komar Shem Tfakot, O Yeshivu Zikini, uzakenot." has a prophecy of the renewal of Yerushalayim, the rebuilding of Yerushalayim. So, uh so why they aiding together, Rabbi Kiva says, Rabbi Kiva says, they're aiding together, because, just like, one is going to come true, the other will come true as well. So Rabbi Kiva says, I'm happy, once I see the, the prophecy of Uriah, has been fulfilled, then I know for sure the prophecy of Zechariah will be fulfilled as well. And that is the comfort I can take in seeing the destruction. So that while the destruction itself is obviously distressing, there's a comfort in there that we have the promise of the eventual redemption. I can only hope for all of us as we learn Navi together. And I thank you for your time and for your joining me. And I urge you and very much enjoy when people get in touch with me about, uh, about the Shirib. That as we experience these nevi'im, and as we bring them alive for us more and more, and as we understand the message they are sending to us more and more, we can hope and pray and be too the puzzle with which we ended our study of Echa, Hashem Elohim and Hashuva Chadesh Have a great day.